Hi everyone, welcome to the Better Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omar Akhtar. In this podcast, I talk with various experts to find better ways of addressing chronic disease. I hope you find this content beneficial. Today, I'm discussing Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD, with Dr. Emily Gutierrez. Autism Spectrum is on the rise, affecting 1 in 36 school-aged children. Currently, we look at autism as a psychological condition, and most therapies are based around pharmacological or behavioral approaches. But recent research shows that a better way of approaching autism is through a biomedical lens, meaning looking at autism as a medical disorder with various underlying imbalances, such as gut inflammation, toxic overload, and so on. That's what we discussed today, and it's a must-listen for any parent with a child on the autism spectrum. Now, let's head over to the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm extremely excited to be speaking with Dr. Emily Gutierrez today. Dr. Emily Gutierrez is the Chief Scientific Medical Liaison and Formulator for Neuronutrients and has over a decade of clinical experience managing patients in her busy practice with Neuronutrition Associates one of the first pediatric-focused functional medicine practices opened in the United States. Dr. Gutierrez received her doctorate from Johns Hopkins University with a focus in translational medicine as a doctor of nursing practice. She received her master's degree from the University of Texas at Austin and is board certified as a pediatric nurse practitioner. Dr. Gutierrez is also board certified through the Institute for Functional Medicine, board certified as a clinical nutritionist, and board certified as a primary care mental health specialist. In addition to actively managing patients in her private practice in Austin, Texas, she's also adjunct faculty at Johns Hopkins University, where she lectures on integrative and functional medicine. Dr. Gutierrez has published in peer-reviewed literature multiple times. However, one of her favorite accomplishments was publishing the first chapter on integrative and functional medicine in a textbook for primary care providers. Dr. Gutierrez continues to be an active researcher, writer, speaker, and her passion for formulating science-based nutrient compounds that meet the strictest standards of quality and efficacy continue to be her favorite tool in managing patients. So, Emily, welcome to this show, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, well, thank you, and thank you for that introduction. So we are talking today about autism spectrum disorder, and this is an area that you specialize in. It's an area that is very close to my heart because I have a a close family member that suffers from autism as well. And I'm sure the people listening to this can all relate because we now all pretty much know someone that suffers from uh, autism spectrum disorder. So I want to just start by asking you a little bit about your journey into functional medicine and ending up with uh, this patient population and treating them? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I think anyone that starts to really study integrative medicine will end up knowing functional medicine. Um, And it, it started for me because I started out in primary care in Austin, Texas, where, you know, my patients were very, I won't say anti-medicine, but there's a lot of what can we do besides prescribing medications? What vitamins can we use? What botanicals or essential oils can we use? And I felt woefully underprepared to really serve my population. They wanted a different type of healthcare and I was their healthcare provider. So that was my problem. I wasn't taught about it. So at Hopkins, that was my journey is figuring out how can we as allopathic mainstream providers integrate some integrative care into our practices and do it that is based on science and do it safely and know, you know, how to incorporate that into our practice. So at Hopkins, that was my problem. I didn't know how to meet my patients where they were at. So my journey was Um, discovering how to do that. I did a clinical trial around that and um, we showed some success. And because I'm a very curious person and the more I study about integrative medicine, the more it just fuels your fire and you want to learn more and more. Um, So, you know, instead of just staying integrative, I took a deeper dive into functional. And the difference is Integrative is what else can you do for this condition? Mm-hmm. You know, so if you have a runny nose, it's it's 
And allopathic care is just basically, you know, do some over-the-counter decongestions and give it some time and it should resolve. In integrative care, it's more of, you know, what else can cure the runny nose? Like, can we use xylitol or, you know, can we use sauna or what other integrative practice can you put on it? And functional is, well, why do you constantly have a runny nose? Mm -hmm. So it's the, it's the question why. And with acute medicine, that doesn't always work, right? It's pretty straightforward when you have strep throat. Well, maybe strep isn't the best example because of pandas, but you know, with flu, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward most of the time. Um, But with chronic illnesses, the why is really important because sometimes the allopathic paradigm if care doesn't work nor does the integrative right and and that's so fascinating because that's basically along the lines of my journey where i was in that allopathic framework primarily in the hospital and seeing a lot of patients come in with chronic disease and just realizing that we may be well equipped to handle their acute issues but not so well equipped to handle their chronic issues and we just didn't have a good way of doing that in the hospital and that's what pretty much led me to uh, starting this practice and trying to really integrate the best of both worlds, you know, using allopathic medicine, but also seeing what else we can use because these patients really need better solutions. And we just didn't have that, or I, I wasn't exposed to that early on. And so it's great that we have that um, similar pathways of uh, getting mm-hmm. there. Um, you wrote a book on uh, autism, which I have right behind me. It's called The Parents' Roadmap to Autism. And it's a book that's really helped me in understanding this condition. And so I want to start by just mentioning that autism is becoming more and more prevalent now. Um, You mentioned in your book about one in 36 roughly school-aged kids. And that was probably in what, 2017 or 18? I don't know if that's that's changed. Uh, More likely that that those rates have gone up. Um, But we are basically over the last... Uh, several decades seeing an increase in the rates of autism. So I want to ask you first what your thoughts are more from a bird's eye view as to why that might be happening and why are we seeing more autism uh, out there? Well, there's a lot of hypothesis why. You know, one of the big hypotheses is, oh, well, we're just better at identifying what autism is. And I think to some regard, there might be some truth in that. But I really don't think it's all of the truth. To me, dealing with this population and treating these families over time, these kids come to me with a lot of oxidative stress in their body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oxidative stress means there's there's a lot of free radicals, a lot of kind of interior resting, a lot of stress on the systems that need balancing. And, and they have stress for a, a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. So I think as our world becomes more toxic and our environment becomes more toxic, our children are becoming more toxic and you're more likely to need to really pay attention to their wellness in a different way from a very, very early age. So a lot of it comes basically back down to the changes in our modern way of living. A lot of it is dietary based, uh, the toxins around us. the stress that we face and now more so younger kids face. So I think a lot of that is what what is to do with these increasing rates, certainly. And so, you know, this book is very interesting because it very clearly lays out how autism is treated currently in the conventional system. And when we look at it from that perspective, it's more of a psychological condition that's so that that's basically how it's looked and treated now so you're most likely if you get this diagnosis you're going to be seeing a neurologist a psychiatrist um and any other specialist in this field um after you see your pediatrician so what are your thoughts on on, on you mentioned more of a biomedical or more of a of looking at it as a medical disorder so can you speak to that a little bit how what is the shift in thought process of autism being seen not so much as a neuropsychological disorder, but a whole body medical disorder? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, 
you know, the allopathic paradigm or the mainstream narrative still is, you know, you, they are, they do have neuropsychiatric symptoms. So you will have things like, you know, OCD type behaviors, stimming, scripting, where, you know, um, they're going over, they might have speech, but they're going over a script in their head and it's kind of nonsensical or you can have apraxia where they don't talk at all. You know, some kids meet their milestones and have a severe regression. Others are delayed from the very beginning. Um, so they are, that's the diagnostic criteria now is, do you have these set of symptoms that are neuropsychological, but where the paradigm shift comes in and, and I'm excited because I think it's happening around depression now as well mm-hmm. is depression used to be this monoamine hypothesis, right? It's all about serotonin. Right. And what we're coming to find out is serotonin plays a role, but it's not everything. Your mm-hmm. gut, your inflammation, your environment, your genetics, your methylation. And it's the same thing with autism. It's it's typically not one gene and one thing. It's a variety of things causing dysfunction in gene expression. And I don't know, are you familiar with Dr. Richard Fry's work? I haven't heard of him, no, but I, I will look him up, certainly. He's a really wonderful um, autism doctor. And I follow a lot of his work because I like the framework he puts around why are we having so much autism? And and as a provider, how can you look at it in the biomedical or kind of from a physical sense? And he he breaks it down into four parts. Part of it, you know, maybe 20% is genetic. And there are strong genes, there's chromosomal genes, there's Mendelian genes, where if you have this, you are going to have the expression of something. Then there's also genes, maybe we can talk about a little bit later, that they're really like, you know, epigenetics and the expression of them are super important. So there's a genetic component. And then those other three components are, you know, oxidative stress or redox stress. So when the body is super stressed out from, you know, a variety of things, infections, toxins, et cetera, mitochondrial stress, which really goes hand in hand with oxidative stress, right? Because the more oxidative stress you have, the more it's going to lead to poor autophagy, more mitochondrial stress, et cetera. And then the last one is poor methylation. And that could mean from just not being able to break down some of your B vitamins to you're building antibodies that are preventing those good methylated active forms of folate getting into the nervous system and crossing through the blood brain barrier. So it's, you know, when you look at a child through the biomedical sense, my first question is where's the fire? You know, where's right. the fire and, and, and wh- where do we start first and trying to put out, you know, the thing that it, where the fire's hottest right. and often it's just not, oh, they have, you know, dysbiosis or their gut is not balanced and they have, you know, some gram negative bacteria in there and they have, you know, irritable bowels. It's usually a combination of a lot of different things when you really do a systems evaluation. Mm-hmm. So I think that I, that really speaks well to how the current way that it's dealt with falls short. So again, that sort of psychological framing of the, this condition, if we don't ask the questions of why it's happening and what are the associated um, uh, systems-related issues going on, and we sort of cut it off at the neck where it's above the neck versus below the neck, then you know, the treatment really comes down to either psychotropic medications or other medications, pharmacologics and um, behavior therapy. And perhaps in the conventional world, that's mainly what people have received and not have much more than that. And so you have seen firsthand so many more parents coming to you desperate for more answers, more solutions, um, and a different approach. And so like you mentioned, uh, Dr. Fry, I think his his work um, in asking that question, why? One, one, it's, I think, just an interesting question from even from a sociological aspect where you're just trying to understand these trends in society and why these rates are increasing. But also for providers like us who are, who are dealing with these patients and children coming into our doors, 
what are the better ways and the, the, the better ways comes from first understanding what, what is causing the issue. So I think that speaks really well to looking at the body as a whole and trying to give these autism spectrum patients a little bit of a different um, paradigm with which they can get their care. So one thing is you mentioned in the book that you it's a roadmap that you laid out, which is that no two patients, no two children start at the same place. And I think that that is a great um, point that patients are, are um, unique and, and each person should have a, an ind- individualized approach to their care. And so Absolutely. like you mentioned, when, one, you, when you treat one kid with autism, you've treated one child with autism. And that, um, you know, it really just humbles you where you, if you apply the exact same things to two different children, you're not going to get the, potentially get the same results. And that's why such a personalized um, approach is needed. So I wanted to dig into that very approach and understand what it is that when you're looking at a patient, when you're looking at a child coming in, how are you seeing them? And what are the first couple of questions that you're asking them in order to give them this more biomedical approach? Well, first, I think we have to acknowledge the providers that are treating autism that don't know integrative and functional medicine. And I, I know they're doing the best that they can. And I really don't want to villainize medicines at all. You know, when I first got into functional medicine and starting integrated medicine, I thought I'm never going to prescribe another antibiotic ever again in my whole life. And that's just absolutely ridiculous. Sometimes antibiotics are needed. Um, And it's the same thing with psychotropic medications. I mean, if you have an aggressive child on the spectrum that isn't sleeping, that attacks his teachers, that headbangs, I mean, maybe, uh, you know, a dose of risperidol or an antipsychotic is is something that that child could benefit from. Now, even if somebody comes to me on on medication, I don't want to try to keep them on that medication forever, but maybe that kid that's headbanging has terrible gut pain, but nobody's looked at inflammation in his gut before, you know? So when parents come to me on medication, I always think, okay, how can we minimize this medication list? And then how can we work into the, uh, for the underlying factors to try to solve those that maybe one day we can get off this list of medications, reduce them, or maybe even get off them completely. But there is sometimes that parents need some symptomatic help because they, otherwise they're going to have to put their child in a home or they're just everyone is so stressed that medications can be helpful. Um, but when I first, when I first see a child, I mean, you know, I don't know if you learned in medical school, probably so that 90% of the diagnosis is in the history Mm -hmm. and over time, you really, the history is so important. And when you're seeing the pediatrician and you have 15 minutes only, it's just the model of care. You can't sit down and say, let's talk about preconception and what happened right after birth. And what was that first year of life like? And, you know, what have you done with food and vaccines? And was there any injury to, you know, any major hospitalizations or illnesses? And when did the autism come on? I think in the history, one of the things that really piques my curiosity is if there was autism from the beginning or there was a regressive form of autism. And the forms of regressive autism tend to be easier to reverse. And, you know, when I hear a history of my child that was delayed from the very beginning, it's even more important to me that they have that big genetic chromosomal microarray and fragile X done. Because I think that's really, really important. We, you know, most kids have a regressive form of autism. Not all of them are autistic from the beginning, um, or a large majority of them have a, a regressive form. And what right. regressive? When, what do you mean when you say regressive form? Yeah, it means that you know, say their child was eighteen months and they were walking and they were talking and they were doing really well. And then they had an event that caused a lot of inflammation and then they stopped talking and they regressed with their milestones. So they're kind of on that trajectory and then it stops and then they reverse, they lose milestones. Okay. Versus they never got to the milestones in the first place. Versus exactly, exactly. 
So first thing when a kid comes in and, and also has apraxia or isn't speaking, I mean, it's really foundational to make sure that that kid's had a hearing test. Mm-hmm. Um, but also if I hear the history of, you know, well, we, we've had chronic um, otitis media or ear infections and he's been on 15 antibiotics, I think, oh, wow, what's the hearing like? And man, what's the microbiome like? You know, I, I really, really try to never, ever, ever prescribe antibiotics in the first year of life. Right. It, it really is your microbiome is it's settling in, it's, it's um, developing. And, you know, the catch 22 to that um, is most infants have the worst microbiomes. Have you ever done a, a stool study on a less than a one-year-old? I've never seen a less than one-year-old as a patient, which is uh, probably a good thing. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. And, yeah. and I, you know, at first it was kind of striking, like, wow, I mean, this, this must be really unusual, but it's not, it's, it, I, I could do a retrospective chart review mm-hmm. and show you, but man, infants have really interesting bacteria. When you look, if you're colicky, if you're fussy, um, if you have eczema, boy, that, that infant needs a stool study and you will find a lot of dysbiosis. So you add that with, you know, taking away the good flora by antibiotics, which, you know, if you have a 15 day old that has a a fever without a source, they're going to go in and tap their spine and give them IV antibiotics. And I don't know that you shouldn't say yes to that. I don't know that it would be patient specific. And what if they had a bacterial meningitis and you didn't give them antibiotics? That can be deadly. Yeah, exactly. So I just got off on a tangent. <laughs> so the, the, I think you were asking me about the workup functionally um, when I have a new patient. Is that correct? Right, right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you're, you're speaking to all the right points in that, you know, the antibiotic use early on, dysbiosis, which is an imbalance in our gut bacteria, the good and the bad bacteria. And so a lot of these kids with autism are presenting with um, certainly neuro, neuropsychological symptoms, but also have sometimes hidden, but sometimes evident GI symptoms that go unnoticed, maybe because whoever's seeing them isn't really trained in that or doesn't have that awareness of the connection between the two or, or skin conditions like eczema, like you mentioned. And so to to be able to put all that together is really the key to treating that patient well. So, well, and, and there's some low hanging fruit with a lot of children in general, autism or not autism. And, you know, if you, if you are trying to find the sources of inflammatory stress, the two biggest low hanging fruit is what are they eating Mm -hmm. and what is their gut like? So when someone comes in and I do assessment, I'm, I'm thinking in systems. I'm not just thinking about, you know, their brain and their neurochemicals and their glutaminergic load versus how much GABA and serotonin they have. I'm also thinking about, you know, what's the balance of their gut? Do they have inflammation? Are they, are they detoxing? Are they stooling every day? Are they sweating? Are they moving? Um, what inflammatory things are mediating and propelling the symptoms? Like if they're allergic to eggs and they're eating them every day, um, So food and gut are probably the two really foundational things to look at first. And, you know, pediatricians can do that. Families that don't see somebody functional can do that. You can, you know, especially if your child has eczema, to me, eczema, 95% of my patients can be cured if you fix their food and if you fix their gut. And by fixing their food is really identifying, well, what are the foods that are causing inflammation? And there's two types of foods, as you know, and it gets kind of, it gets kind of um, confusing for parents. And I've actually seen this a lot in clinic lately is, you know, we'll have somebody that has done a food study and they're like, oh no, I've already done that before. We don't need to get that blood work. But the difference between what's sensitive in a food and what's truly allergic is very different, right? IgE versus IgG allergies. And I think they're, I think true allergy and sensitivity is important to get on a child, especially if they have skin manifestations. But the catch is if, if somebody comes up with a lot of IgG or sensitivities, 
you know that there's a permeability issue in their gut. So, you know, as you know, how to, how to, how to fix the gut is part of it's making sure that what you're putting into your gut isn't irritating it. And the second part is trying to rebalance it, you know, taking out the flora or the bacteria or the parasites or the fungi that shouldn't be there and replacing it with the good um, fiber, you know, insoluble, soluble fiber, prebiotic fiber, and getting all those good colonies to grow, but not to overgrow because then you can create other problems. It's all a balance. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you spoke right now with two, um, I think two of the five things that you mentioned as the core areas that you focus on when you see a patient, the five being nutrition, gut health, toxins, immunity, and genes, right? So, so you spoke to, to nutrition and gut health. And so when, what about the, the other three of these where, where it comes to genetic testing and when it comes to immunity? Um, I certainly like to hear your thoughts on on that. When you let's say you've you dealt with a lot of the basic uh, nutritional side of things, mm-hmm. I think that you know really making sure you have a solid foundation first is important. And you know toxicity is is nuanced; it's not the same in everyone. Um, and there's not just one way to evaluate toxicity. So toxicity to a pediatrician is they're going to do a lead level mm-hmm. and they're going to see if there's lead in the blood. And that's really standard of care at nine months, you should have a lead level done on your baby. Right. You know, what's curious to me is that, um, not all pediatricians for sure, but most pediatricians, if you get a two or a three back in your blood, they're like, Oh, it's within normal limits. It's totally fine. But I'm like, Oh no, mm-hmm. you're being exposed to lead. We got to figure out the source and we got to get it out of your body mm-hmm. because in some people based on their genetics more than others, they don't biotransform that toxin or that heavy metal and they store it. So I like to know, like, what are you being exposed to now and what has been stored? Um, so I know chelation can be kind of a dirty word and a scary word um, and really turn some people off. But the truth is, is if you, if you do um, an assessment on toxins, so let's say heavy metals in particular, and you look, you're going to find what's being in that child's, you know, environment within the last six to 12 weeks. Um, so you might pick up arsenic, especially if somebody's eating a lot of rice, you'd be so surprised how many are, how much arsenic I find. Oh, really? oh yeah. And you can even just do a urine heavy metal panel from CPL and just, it gives you arsenic, cadmium, lead. It also gives you a zinc level. So you can find a lot of things in the urine, but if it's current, we, mm-hmm. we need to do a big assessment on the environment and figure it out. Yeah. But when it's not properly detoxified, it can be stored and it's stored in your adipose tissue and in your bones. And so in order to figure out what's kind of your net retention of those heavy metals, you, I like to give a small dose of DMSA and it's called provoking mm-hmm. a urine. Right. So then you get a child to provoke a urine and you see what's stored. And can I tell you an example of something that's really fun that I yeah. found lately? Well, Fun might not be the best description for interesting, it, but it's maybe. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I have a non-autistic um, four-year-old now that I've been working with, and she has had chronic lead in her blood over and over again. And it's never high. And, and believe me, these parents are like the best parents. Like they are so mindful of everything in her environment. They, the, Her nutrition is beautiful. Like everything is going right for this little girl she's not growing. She's under the fifth percentile or she's not even on the curve, not growing, not growing. So in the past six months, I encouraged the parents. I'm like, you know, DMSA is FDA approved for lead toxicity. It's really safe. We dose it based on, you know, milligrams per kilo of the weight of the child. They usually do 30 and then max out at a hundred, um, 800 milligrams. It is for a provoked dose. So we did a small dose and she has the worst lead toxicity ever. Like it is just off the charts and we're working on getting the lead out. We're working on it. Um, And that's important for her. She doesn't have autism, but she's not growing. So my hope is 
we, you know, detox her from her heavy metal toxicity and she grows better. And that will be a win for us. But in autism with that redox stress with, you know, there is, you know, it's connected, right? So there are some genes in autism that you don't make cysteine well, your CTH gene. Mm-hmm. There's also some, you don't make your glutathione very well. And these are antioxidants that when your body is trying to mobilize these toxins, right. it needs that antioxidant to bind them. So you can biotransform them. You can poop them, pee them and sweat them out of your body. Right. So, um, it, it ties a little bit into genetics. And I also think that toxicity ties into uh, redox stress and mitochondrial stress. There was a really um, interesting article that was recently written in January of 2022. Um, let me see the, the, it was by, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher the last name. So it's T-R-I-F-O-N-O-V-A. And the um, title of it is Abnormal mTOR Activity in the Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Associated Autism Spectrum Disorder. And I know that's a real mouthful, Mm -hmm. but in in October, I'm going to go speak to um, the parents at TACA. So it's um, used to be called uh, Talk About Curing Autism, and now it's the Autism Community in Action. And I'm going to speak on PANS and PANDAS, so an autoimmune encephalitis. And, and can you just mention to people what PANS and PANDAS is who, who may not know? Yeah, so PANDAS is Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Related to Streptococcus. And basically what that means is sometimes a child gets a strep infection and it usually is occult, meaning they have it, but they don't have big red tonsils, fever, rash, malaise. They just are carrying around strep. And as it goes undetected, it causes some immune system dysregulation. And you start having parts of your brain attacked by your immune system. And it causes this constellation of symptoms like OCD, anxiety, separation, anxiety, bedwetting, or regression, regression, and like being able to stay night trained or urinary symptoms. There is a lot of OCD that goes with it too. Um, And it's usually very abrupt that it comes on. So unfortunately, autistic kids are more vulnerable to develop PANS. And in this article, it was trying to elucidate that and, and, and talk about why is there an association? And I think it goes back down to those things we were talking about of redox stress and stress on the person will cause stress in the mitochondria. And when you have a lot of stress in the mitochondria, you know, all of those little organelles and systems within the cell should be like little machinery factories to clean up things, take out things, produce energy. And it's like when you have a problem doing that, the oxidative stress builds in the body. So that process is called autophagy, um, and it it relates to mitochondrial yeah. stress and autism. Yeah, that's so fast. That's another. That's another part. It's a great article. Maybe I should give you the the thing. You can put it in your in yeah. Your I, I can I can link. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll do that. Um, and so and I think the 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 other one we you mentioned immunity briefly. I just wanted to mention and see your thoughts on. There's research, research that I've seen that points to a sometimes an autoimmune basis to autism, right? And um, and that is where sometimes maternal, uh, let's say, autoimmunity and the development of antibodies in in the maternal uh, system can transfer across the pl- placenta to the baby and um, basically affect the baby's immune system. And that can potentially, and that's been linked with the development of autism in the next few years for that child. So can you speak to that? And is there validity to that theory? Um, I think it's a a really interesting theory and it's something to pay attention to. I still don't think it's the only thing. I think you have to have a vulnerable, um, Mm -hmm. a vulnerable host for that to happen to, right? So the genetics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to be careful not to blame mothers though. Cause it's like, you know, yes, it's yeah. so hard. I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many 
yeah. moms I've sat knee to knee with and they just go back and they're like, if I only wouldn't have vaccinated, if I only would have, you know, done a detox mm. before pregnancy, yeah. they just, they just blame themselves. And the right. truth is there's, there's no blame that the mom didn't do anything. The mom yeah. didn't do anything to cause the autism. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that doing, you know, when, when women are childbearing age and they are planning and if they can plan, I think it's so important for them to do a, a right. you know, preconception planning on themselves and look for chronic infections, look to see what their inflammation is, get their inflammation low, get their immune systems, you know, working as best as they can because you can pass right. infections to your child. I mean, we see that with cytomegalia virus. We see that with Lyme. I mean, it, it, it is, mm -hmm. it is plausible. Um, right. so yeah, that, that's a very important point in it. And uh, yeah, just to stress on that, because we're talking about it again, from a very scientific and a medical perspective, but there is this real life, real world, um, emotional component and social component to this. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, just to be clear, exactly what you said is that no mother is responsible for this or has caused this, um, but it's just an interesting um, theory or oh, interesting sure. um, hypothesis to see that is there any scientific basis to sure. that. So um, I definitely think it's very important. Well, change. and we can't not explore something because it might hurt someone's feelings, but I think that as being their right. provider and being somebody that's partnering with them, it's just important to say it out loud when you know they're thinking it and have that human moment with them where you're like, I'm going to say words that you don't know. We're going to talk about redox and glutathione and detox. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, that's the art in this. You have to be really careful not to overwhelm somebody because yeah. then they have a hard time starting with even just one thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. And connect so, with them as well. Yeah. But there's, it's so many people studying the why, the why, the why. And I don't ever know if we're going to find the single agent or the single answer why. Maybe that brings us to our genetic discuss discussion because there are, there are genes that are associated with autism, you know, and some of those genes are, um, there's actionable items that if you can identify those genes, you can actually do something about them. Like, for example, in some kids, they have something called a shank mutation. And that is really um, a, a, an impaired development of their glutamate receptors in their brain. And recently, you know, I've had a couple of kids that I'm running a genetic panel on. Would you like me to say who I'm running panels with? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been using uh, Dr. Sharon Houseman Cohen's genetic test um, called Intellix DNA. And she's, she's a firecracker. She is a Harvard doc that is just super, super smart. And she started doing a lot of work with Del Bredesen in the neurodegenerative space. Mm -hmm. And about three years ago, right. she really embraced um, the autism field. And we've been putting together panels for autism. And I've been part of her beta users. And she has some of the smartest physicians in the world working with her on autism. Um, so there's an autism and mental wellness panel that I run and it gives me clues. You know, it, the reason I like this test is in because of looking at like what's common in the population. So there are some that are common in the population that are also important, like, especially when it comes to methylation, um, you have to have B12 and folate to methylate. But the catch to that is you have to methylate your folate into that type of folate that's needed for methylation, right? And that's super yeah. common. You know, it's super common. When Ben Lynch came out with MTHFR.net, we were all excited, like, oh my gosh, I have that MTHFR gene, you know, and I still have patients today, like really excited about their, you know, MTHFR. I'm like, you know, yeah, it's great that we know that, but it's, it's one in multiple genes in that pathway. Yeah. And we have to, you know, so when you run, like, do you run folic acids on patients? Yes, I do folic acid. Mm -hmm. So it's tricky, right? Because when it's low, you know that they are megablastic anemic. They are so deficient, right? But when it's high, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's high. It means it's not being methylated or broken down. 
because that's synthetic and you need those broken down forms. So um, that's really common in the population. That's common for a lot of neuropsychiatric things. You know, instead of, you might not have a Prozac deficiency, you might have a methylfolate deficiency. Yeah. And that's part of autism too. Um, Absolutely. But there are, there are some genes in the entelics that are way more rare. And so I like kind of shifting and looking at it that way. Like, okay, well, you know, like the CBS genes there, it's pretty common in the population, but those people are not autistic, not all of them, but it is a gene in autism that you'll see more often. You'll see, you know, in the shank population, you're not always autistic, but you're very likely to be autistic. I think I don't want to say a number because I, I don't want Sharon to be upset with me if I get it wrong, but it's it's way more rare. But yeah. what's beautiful about finding a shank mutation is in order for those synapses to develop more appropriately, they need very high doses of zinc. So instead of giving like a four-year-old, you know, 20 milligrams of zinc, I might give them 75 milligrams of zinc you know, above what the RDA is, or even the National Institute of Health Office for Dietary Supplements, upper tolerable limit of zinc, because I know that that's going to treat that child's, you know, synaptic malfunction based on their mm. shank genes. So yeah, it gives you, well, and it, it gives you, it gives you something to do, you know, you're like, oh, well, you know, here's, here's an intervention yeah. that should really work over time. Um, and I've had a lot of, I've had some success stories with shank kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, you mentioned just when you run these genetic panels, because they're, they're very extensive tests, they're oftentimes very expensive tests as well. And so, you know, having good actionable steps at the end of it is also very important rather than just knowing the genetic makeup or the genes that caused it. So, you know, it's good that we can put those together. Mm -hmm. So. And, and, and you're right. Genetics can be expensive, especially if they're quality genetics, they're checked, they're verified, they're using the right, you know, next gen sequencing, you know, when 23andMe came out, we were all super excited about, wow, look at all this raw data that we have and we can file it through all of these things, but those aren't verified genes and there are mistakes in those. So, um, I'm going to see something that might be a little sensational, but I think if you have a child on the spectrum, instead of saving for their college, when they're young, you need to save for their medical care and you need to have that investment up front with them so that later on there's less of a cost. And it's super, super true. This statement, the earlier right. the intervention, the better the outcome. Yeah. I think that's very important to mention because I think that one way or the other, whether you're doing the the initial stuff like you mentioned and the genetic testing and all of that, there it will still be a lot of money spent if you don't do those things and go towards the therapies like uh, you know, psychiatry, behavior therapy, all of those things that come with it. So probably one way or the other, there's a high cost involved in this in this uh, condition, as is the case with most chronic conditions. But um, in this way, you could potentially get more benefit early on. So very important to, that you mentioned that. So, and Omar, you know, it, there is a high cost associated with autism period because of all the therapies, the doctor's visits, the care, all of it, very, very high cost to the parents. Um, but I, my hope is, is that the way that we treat autism in the allopathic mainstream community starts to change. And there are some very, very basic things that pediatricians can do to lower inflammatory stress in these kids. And I know some pediatricians that are doing it and, yeah. and you know, they just need even just, or primary care providers, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, you just need, I mean, even just a few things can make such a big impact, yeah. um, but there's just poor Especially access. early on. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent, especially yeah. early yeah. on. Yeah. So that awareness, and that's, you know, a big reason to, to be doing, having these conversations is to create that awareness and to get that different model out there, that different paradigm that we're trying to look at this condition with. So, so I appreciate you 
doing what you're doing and also creating awareness about this condition. So if I could, um, I want to summarize kind of what we talked just very briefly. And then I'd love to hear if you have a, a case that is um, kind of stuck out for you that, that is showing that how this model works in real practical ways. I'd love to hear that. And so, you know, we're talking about autism spectrum disorder and we are trying to, we were talking about looking at it away from a psychological or neuropsychological model, more towards a biomedical or medical disorder. And we take, and your approach is taking that, those five core areas of nutrition, gut health, genes, toxins, and immunity. And to evaluate all those in a very individualized and personalized way, A, because you have the time to do that with the parents, but also having that awareness and using a, a systems-based approach, which is looking at your skin in, in relation to your gut, your gut in relation to your brain, all of those things together. And so that is kind of what we're talking about. That's what we're advocating for. And that's really what parents of these kids suffering with um, autism spectrum disorder really need. So that's kind of in, in summary. If, if I've let's left something out, please let me know. But I'd love to hear about a case example that you have um, where this model has been applied very successfully. I'm sure you have many. Sure. Well, I'll think of some of my most recent cases. But, you know, who knew that taking dairy out of a kid's diet could improve their autism? You know, it sounds so simple, right? But if you're allergic or sensitive to dairy and it's causing inflammatory stress in your gut, it's wrecking your skin, you know, it's causing folate receptors to have this antibody response to them. It just seems so simple. And it's one thing that doesn't cost anything other than, you know, find another source of calcium, which in the, which in your diet, calcium is abundant. It's one of our most abundant minerals we have in our food source. So it is, it's trying to put into context that the systems in our body affect the way that our brain is functioning and our body is developing as a small child. So one of my new favorite cases that, um, I don't know, sometimes when they send me portal messages and they're just as positive that they are, I copy and paste the message and send it to my staff to say, you know, what we're doing is, you know, really helpful and impactful and, um, gives everybody a boost. But I have a three-year-old that lives um, on a golf course in the Houston area. And um, this little kiddo came to me, was probably diagnosed. I think they were on the wait list for six months before they saw me or too long. Um, I wish I would have seen him sooner. But, you know, the, the big thing after doing a systems evaluation for this kid is just toxins. Mm-hmm. And it's real interesting because, you know, the kiddo's going outside and playing in the yard mm-hmm. on the golf course that has all the pesticides on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so the child had um, pretty severe eczema, wasn't sleeping, wasn't talking, lots of um, stemming behavior. So um, irritability. Uh, and parents are, you know, I mean, they're, they're well-to-do parents. They're very involved. It's their only child. They're really mindful about nutrition. Um, and it was a shock, you know, it was a shock on what, what kind of, you know, after our evaluation where the kiddo was at. Um, and so we slowly started to remove and that's the work what do we remove from the child that's there stressing them out? And then what do we replace to help them grow and get back on um, the right path to recovery? And um, we've done that. And, you know, the mom sent me a portal message a couple of weeks ago saying that, you know, I, I think, I don't think that he has any more signs of autism. We're in such a good spot right now. I had to send you an email, like his new teachers are, you know, we're getting great glowing reports. He's sleeping well, his eye contact's better, his, his uh, stimming behaviors are down, his irritability is down, his skin is better. So it was, it was, it was helpful. It was encouraging, but I don't want to leave with like, Oh, and now they're on their way, you know, because there will be a time where he gets strep throat or he gets sick or, you know, they do something and they're, they're, 
it's like, it's not this, you hit the ground running and you, you, all you see is improvements until, you know, they're 18. There is this, you know, five steps up, two steps down, five steps up, two steps down. So you will have these kind of wax and wane of symptoms, but overall the trajectory should be, I'm getting better and better mm-hmm. overall, all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. And the same applies to adults with various chronic issues, whether it's autoimmunity or, or something else, you know, you'll have improvements and then you'll, you'll have, you know, it's just the nature of the illness. And so, so that's such a fascinating, uh, example of a case and it's a it's it shows when it is in a practice this this biomedical approach is in practice and this this paradigm is applied how much uh, significant benefit we can see in these kids and so I, I appreciate you sharing that with us yeah well i'm 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 often um discouraged and dismayed when I am in a group of parents of autism for various reasons, a movie showing, you know, a special feature, et cetera. And someone mentions this biomedical approach and the majority of people have no idea. And that's, that's so heartbreaking to me because there are things that you can do early on. Um, There are things and actionable steps that parents can make at home. And it's not all very, very, very complicated. Um, it's about removing inflammatory stress and, and, and giving their unique in of one little bodies, what they need to thrive and grow. And it does take a functional look, but my hope again, is that even some of the very, very simple things like addressing nutrition just become really standard of care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the hope with conversations like these. So I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing all your wisdom around this condition. And so thank you again for your time. Well, thank you for having me and good luck with the podcast. Thank you. If you liked this episode, please share with your friends and family. And please remember to subscribe so we can share this message with as many people as possible. 